Welcome to Doth Protest Too Much. We have Dr. Chester on today, Stephen Chester. Uh, he has taken a huge interest and has written a lot about the reception of Paul's writings, how Paul's writings have been interpreted throughout the history of Christianity, of which his book, Reading Paul with the Reformers, Reconciling Old and New Perspectives, is a product of. This book will be the topic of our discussion today. It is a comprehensive book that looks how looks at how Paul's writings were central to the theology of Martin Luther and the Reformers, how the Reformers interpreted the Pauline texts in their time and place, and how later modern trends of scholarship have not always appreciated that, and what insights we can still gain from the Reformers' understanding of Paul. Uh, Dr. Chester is the Lord and Lady Coggan Professor of New Testament at Wycliffe College, where he has been since 2019. Prior to that, he taught at North Park Theological Seminary in Chicago, from 2006 to 2019. He holds a PhD in New Testament from University of Glasgow, where he wrote his dissertation on how Paul writes about conversion in his correspondence with the Corinthian church. Uh, he is married to his wife, Betsy, with two adult sons. He likes reading detective fiction, Lancashire's cricket team, and has a history of interest in urban ministry. And I took all those personal details from your <laughs> faculty bio on Wycliffe's website. I like it when I come across fun faculty bios. So many of them are just boring. I like it when I come across one that talks about family and sports and just makes it more human, you know. So, <laughs> But welcome to the show, Dr. Chester. Thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. So before we get into anything, I think we need to, you know, define some terms. I'm, you know, I'm amazed, I, you know, I'll, I'll run into people with, you know, a seminary degree and not, and they ask me like, what do you think of N.T. Wright? I'm like, well, I like this or I don't like that. And, you know, he's new perspective on Paul. And they're like, what's new perspective on Paul? Um, or So let's define that. It should probably, should probably be called new perspectives, right? Um, it's, yes. it's a name given to, you know, scholarly movement starting around the late 70s, but it, it gained traction in biblical studies, Pauline studies. Can you kind of define what it is, what forms? And I know it's a variety, but what mm. different forms there are of it, but what's the basic gist of it? Yeah, thank you, Drew. I think that's a really helpful place to start because it's actually um, the context within which my interest in the reformers' interpretation of Paul grew and developed. So, uh, you know, this is where the, the the project of the book Reading Paul with the Reformers really began. So, as you say, in the late 1970s, there began to be a marked change in the way in which Paul's letters were interpreted. If you look back over the previous five centuries, back to the time of the reformers, interpretation of Paul tended to be dominated by trajectories of interpretation that, that stemmed from that Reformation heritage. So that doesn't mean everybody said the same thing or that there weren't disagreements. But if you think about it as a family of ideas, then there were recognizable family resemblances. Mm -hmm. And one of the key ideas was Luther, Luther's emphasis that it's impossible for us to earn our own salvation. And in reading Paul's texts, when Paul says again and again that justification is not by works of the law, Luther took that to mean justification is not through our own efforts. Mm -hmm. And so um, he saw that as cutting against the teaching of the Catholic Church in his own time and place. But he also saw it as what 
Paul was protesting against in relation to the apostles' own opponents in the first century. And so as we move on in the history of scholarship into the historical critical period um, in the modern university, that basic sense of what Paul means by works of the law gets applied in scholarship to quote-unquote scientific descriptions of Judaism as a religion. And so Judaism is typically portrayed in, in 19th and early 20th century scholarship in very unsympathetic terms as a legalistic religion of works righteousness. And what happens in the late 1970s is that scholars begin to question that. Uh, so scholars like James Dunn and uh, E.P. Sanders and N.T. Wright start to develop new ways of looking at Paul. And so um, they begin to argue that when Paul says justification is not by works of the law, he doesn't mean that we're not justified by our own efforts. What he is instead objecting to is the idea that it's necessary to be Jewish in order to be a faithful follower of Jesus. So on this new perspective view, Paul is here as apostle to the Gentiles, deeply concerned with the basis on which um, Gentile believers uh, come into the church? Do they come into the church purely on the basis of Christ and his saving work, or is it necessary for them uh, first to become Jewish? And Paul is saying, no, um, you know, the work of God that has been done through Jesus the Messiah it is not to be identified solely with the Jewish people. Um, so in the new perspective view, Paul's fundamental objection is, is to what he takes to be the ethnocentrism of his opponents. Uh, Paul's fundamental objection is to their idea that it's necessary for everybody to take on observance of the Old Testament law um, and to become uh, Jewish in their practices in order properly to be true followers of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so from the late 1970s onwards, there's a kind of paradigm shift in the way in which Paul is interpreted in order to reflect this new understanding. And in the way in which that new understanding was presented, um, often the reformers got to be the, the, the kind of villains of the piece in the sense that they were held to be responsible for a history of misinterpretation, a history of, of misunderstanding Paul. And therefore, um, if you want to understand Paul and his texts, then um, often in new perspective literature, what was implied was that the reformers were the last place that you would look for inspiration. Right. Wow. Um, and as somebody who began studying Paul about 30 years ago in the early 1990s, that was the context in which my own initial education in Paul took place. Um, and so uh, here I was, somebody who'd come from... Um, church traditions, church contexts in which the, the legacy of the Reformation was valued, uh, and then coming into an educational context where it was being held to be responsible for our failures to understand Paul. And so my, my kind of question that grew out of that experience was, well, is that right? Um, 
did the reformers really radically misunderstand Paul? Um, are New Testament scholars accurately understanding the reformers? Mm -hmm. And however we answer that question, is, is, there, is there anything in what the reformers say that is of continuing validity as a resource for our attempts to interpret Paul today? Um, so those, those new perspective debates really did form the context out of which the, the book grew. So you said it, it was the early 90s, and I imagine, I don't know specifically the state of Pauline studies in the early 90s, but it seems like uh, a lot of the people that do fall in that new perspective, Paul, schools, you know, I, were writing a lot in the 90s. I feel like N.T. Wright and James Dunn, they were writing so much in the 1990s. Is that, uh, I, I was very young at that point, but it, it seems like a lot of those publication dates, that's, that's the era. Yeah, I think my, my kind of um, initial education in Paul came at the, the, the kind of um, flood tide of, of the new perspective, really. Um, from the late 1970s onwards, they'd been uh, publishing and propagating their ideas and so inevitably, it, it takes a while for new ideas to become a scholarly orthodoxy. Um, but by the time I was taking classes on Paul, that was beginning to be the case with the new perspective, that most of the literature that was being suggested to us as, as helpful in relation to understanding Paul uh, adopted a new perspective viewpoint. It's amazing how things that are pushing against the grain end up becoming orthodoxies. It's a general thing. That's right. <laughs> um, so Beverly Gavanta, who I think I'm pronouncing her last name right. Uh, yes. Uh, New I, a scholar I enjoy. I've read her Acts commentary. I don't remember what series that was for, but I've got for a it, very, uh, very great scholar to read from. Said of your book, I'm reading from the back cover. Uh, she said, for a scholarly generation, students of Paul have confidently treated the 16th century reformers as Paul's misinterpreters in chief. Now Stephen Chester's patient and learned treatment of the reformers Pauline exegesis exposes both their thoughtfulness and their potential as wise conversation partners in the present. This is a major contribution to Pauline study, unquote. What stood out to me was that um, her words of, uh, you know, how the reformers became misinterpreters of, uh, in chief. Um, I was at a conference last year. I was talking with someone, I won't reveal his name, but uh, they are a New Testament uh, scholar and um, they've written a little bit in this area and uh, the conversation was something oh so I, I was saying uh, you know my my issue with uh, a lot of the new perspective is not that I don't think that they necessarily don't know Paul or that you know they don't know the Bible some of the greatest biblical scholars in our world also happen to be new perspectivists I guess my issue is that they don't really know the reformers they don't really know the reformers to the extent that they should. And this person I was talking to said, you know what? I was in the presence of James Dunn, who once said, you know, he admitted, you know, the reformers kind of just serve as foils for us. It was almost like a shameless remark. And I'm not trying to pick fights with James Dunn, but so um, I do, I think that's just kind of evidence of like, uh, like, wow, we really do need to pay the reformers a second look if that's what it's become. So I, were these concerns similar to yours on why you said, I know you spoke a little bit to it, but why you set out to write, to write this book? I, yes, they were. Um, 
I think, though, one of the things I was clear about from the start was that this wasn't going to be a project that was simply about rejecting the new perspective. Sure. Um, you know, so my my question was a little bit different. My my question was really, how do we construct a, a critical dialogue about Paul mm-hmm. so that in relation to our Reformation heritage, especially for those of us who come from ecclesial traditions in which that's valued, um, how do we um, appropriately critically assess our own heritage in relation to interpreting Paul's letters so that um, where it becomes clear that the reformers do misunderstand Paul, that that we acknowledge that and Mm -hmm. and adopt a different viewpoint. Mm -hmm. Um, But also, where do they still have resources to, you know, that can be of assistance to us in our own time and place in understanding Paul? Um, And so for me, the book was always about that double focus. And I think through the process of research, because this took me a long time, it, it was a project that evolved over a 13 or 14 year period. Um, through that process of research, what, what became clarified for me were the points of essential disagreement, uh, the points where the new perspective um, typically misunderstands what the reformers were trying to say, and the points at which actually the new perspective is still dependent in different ways upon exegetical moves that were, were first made by the reformers and, and in fact were fairly radical in their own context in setting them against the medieval tradition of interpreting Paul, but which subsequently have so become part of the common stock of Pauline scholarship that, that nobody actually notices almost that they're, they're derived from Reformation interpretation. So part of what I was trying to achieve with the, the book was, was teasing out the different elements, working out which is which, which is genuine disagreement, which is misunderstanding, which actually is continued dependence in different ways. I think you hit all three of those uh, areas well um, in the book, especially the, the last part where it's, um, you know, okay, now shifting to the new perspective. But before we get to that part, uh, to that part of the book, um, the whole huge first portion up until that was really wasn't just reformation. It was a comprehensive historic treatment. Um, and, you know, so, I mean, I like how um, it wasn't just a study of how the reformers interpreted Paul, though it spent a lot of time on that. And it wasn't only a study and critique of more contemporary scholarship, um, which did spend a lot of time on that, but, you give a historical survey in the history of Pauline interpretation, you know, from the beginning, tracing it through early and medieval contexts of the church. And I wanted to ask you a couple questions on, on, on that, um, just so we can kind of see this uh, developmental line of, of um, how justification is thought of. Um, could you uh, maybe, you, you know, I mean, obviously most, uh, most Christians who maybe never looked at the his, this history before, and even a lot of Christians who didn't grow up in traditions like all three of us, which value the reformational heritage, they still know have have come across that term justification if they have ever read, you know, Romans, you know, all is sin and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, or Galatians two sixteen, a man is not justified by the works of the law but through faith in Christ Jesus. So this theme of this 
term justification comes up, but and you know, your book mentions how both Augustine and Aquinas tackled this. And I think, you know, you, you covered a lot more people than that, but seeing that, that these two are the most significant, arguably, figures in church history before the reformers, how did, how did Augustine and Aquinas each understand justification and its relation to good works? Those are big questions. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think this is this is one of the challenges I faced. And this is one of the reasons this project took me 13 or 14 <laughs> years, actually. That when I started to dig into the reformers, one of the things you, you understand if you work on historical interpreters like that is that in, interpretation always takes place within the flow of time. So you can't really just isolate a moment in the 16th century and, and treat that um you know, in a way that detaches it from what's gone before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I do think this is a, a problem in Reformation studies, really, that, that people may well be enormously expert in the 16th century and, and the thought of the 16th century and the 16th century context. But one of the things with people like Luther and Calvin is they have read the Church Fathers extremely extensively. <laughs> and so, and so they have this, this kind of background knowledge of the Christian tradition that many of us today can only envy. Um, so um, I'm sure there are many dimensions of this that I've missed in the book. But I felt it was essential at least to, to dip my toes into that water uh, on this central question of justification. Mm-hmm. So that said, you asked about uh, Augustine and Aquinas. Um, Augustine is definitely the place to start. He's the church father who's most influential in terms of the subsequent history of Latin theology uh, in, in the Church of the West. And also, of course, Martin Luther himself is a friar in the Augustinian order. And so, you know, any Western theologian in the late medieval context is going to be shaped powerfully by Augustine. But for Luther in particular, that, that's intensified by the, the, the fact that, that he's part of um, an order that, that explicitly looks back to Augustine as its inspiration. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean in practice? Well, I think... You know, one thing that many of our listeners will know about Augustine is his engagement in debates with Pelagius mm-hmm. uh, over the question of grace and free will. And Augustine insists in those debates that salvation is about grace. Salvation is about divine initiative. And so um, in the debates with Pelagius, what Augustine establishes really and, and makes Christian orthodoxy is the idea that uh, in salvation there is always divine initiative. It, it's never ourselves who take the first step towards God. It's always God who takes the first step towards us. And so um, following Augustine, it becomes clear ever afterwards that um, those things that human beings do before they're baptized, before they have faith, um, however good they are when judged by uh, normal human standards in everyday society, they're not actually pleasing to God in salvific terms. Um, we, we have to rely on God and his grace. The question that Augustine leaves open is, What about the good deeds that the Christian does after baptism? Mm -hmm. And here it's important to understand that that 
he um, understood the verb to justify in terms of God making us righteous. And so he saw the whole of the Christian life as an opportunity for us to grow in righteousness. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what developed on the basis of Augustine's theology was a strong sense that it's the responsibility of the Christian to cooperate with the divine grace that's been granted in baptism. It's not that we can ever initiate the process. We can't. Um, This is a common Protestant misunderstanding. Protestants often think of uh, Roman Catholic theology as being uh, entirely Pelagian, and and this just isn't true. Um, Roman Catholic theology on justification begins from the assumption that the grace of God is the primary thing. Mm -hmm. The the difference is really about um, what happens in terms of, or what's the truth about um, the 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 good deeds done um, by the Christian um, that express love of God and neighbor, uh, do those deeds contribute to somebody's justification in, in this lifelong process of becoming righteous? Um, and so it's fairly clear that, although he might not spell out the details, that in some sense for Augustine, the answer to that question is yes. Um, those deeds do make some kind of contribution to our justification as as we grow in righteousness. But then what happens over the subsequent centuries is that that becomes much more clearly developed in terms of a theology of merit. Um, These these deeds come to be regarded as meritorious, um, and they also become to be attached to the medieval church's penitential system which of course is something that that hadn't existed in a formal way in Augustine's time, but which grew over the subsequent centuries. Um, And so for the medieval church, justification is about this lifelong journey um, where somebody is impacted by the grace of God received in baptism and then cooperates with that through their good deeds so that they become righteous ideally to the point at which they're able to stand before God as a, as a righteous person and, and be judged by God as, as ready to share in the life of heaven. Um, and in terms of medieval teaching about, about purgatory, it's the distance that somebody has advanced along that, that journey of increasing righteousness that determines whether and how long it might be necessary for somebody to, to spend in purgatory before they're able to enter into the life of heaven. Um, uh, and um, where Aquinas plays a particular part is within that framework, um, he develops a particular emphasis on, um, you know, habits of, of uh, grace um, that, that are infused through the sacraments of the church. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so he develops this strong sense that... Um, you know, yes, we we may uh, still experience sin in our lives, and therefore we may lose grace. But the, the sacramental ministry of the church, if you like, uh, enables us to um, make up that deficit, and and the um, grace is being you know expressed through the developments of of, of good habits, uh, which lead into meritorious deeds. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he particularly emphasizes 
that, that this is about uh, perfecting um, the good gifts that have been given in creation. You know, so for Aquinas, uh, grace perfects nature. Um, and, and so it's, it's allowing us to return to uh, what we had always been intended to be in, in God's good creation. So you say, you say in your book that the, you know, the position of the Roman Catholic Church um, on what justification is, uh, at least as it uh, is asserted in the Council of Trent, which would, you know, is, is during and shortly after the Reformation, that what the um, Council decreed on justification is basically just a reassertion of uh, Augustine's, what you call exegetical grammar. Um, and interestingly, you mentioned how the Catholic Church kind of opted not to define it in terms of Aquinas and the scholastics, but rather, you know, basically reassert the language of Augustine. And, um, you know, he described for Augustine what, you know, the concept of justification being a transformative process in our lives. Um, but Protestantism, of course, differs on this point when it comes to justification. And um, as, as interestingly, as much as the reformers looked to Augustine for so many things, um, in comparison to any other church father. But I like how you point out that it was the exegetical grammar of Augustine that the Catholic Church um, asserted. Um, and you bring a lot of attention to this concept of exegetical grammar. Um, can you tell us like what that means? Um, and also uh, on that note, like, uh, you know, the Lutheran Calvin worked with a different exegetical grammar than uh, that of that of Augustine, and so I guess uh, you know what what is exegetical grammar, but then like how does it how does it differ by the the context we come we we come to with Luther? Mm. Yeah, so exegetical grammar is is really um, a concept that I found that that Luther himself alludes to at one point, but but it's really a, a passing comment by Luther about the grammar of his theology. But um, I, I thought that was a very helpful image um, because I had to find a way of writing about the reformers and recognizing that they have differences among themselves, mm -hmm. but also writing about them in a way that reflects the things they held in common that enabled them to be a coherent movement over and against the Roman church and its teaching. Mm -hmm. um, so exegetical grammar became the, this kind of conceptual way for me of doing that, where, um, it, you know, it's a, it's a metaphor. So um, what grammar does is um, it, it provides rules for the way in which individual languages are used. It mm -hmm. provides a framework that, that, Govern how you say certain things and, and, and within which um, it's necessary to operate if what you say is going to make sense to other speakers of the same language. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't arbitrarily, even though they develop over time, you can't arbitrarily change the rules of, of uh, the grammar of a language and, and still expect to be able to communicate clearly to other speakers of that language. Um, you, you have to operate within the grammar of a language as you find it. And so this idea of an exegetical grammar was an attempt to get to grips with the fact that there are some very long-standing frameworks within which Paul gets interpreted. Mm -hmm. So 
Augustine makes some of the basic exegetical moves that we've just described in terms of how he understands justification. And although there's a lot more to be said, and although that framework is hugely elaborated over subsequent centuries, and although there can be disagreements between individual interpreters within that framework, uh, nevertheless, those basic exegetical moves kind of govern, if you like, how justification is understood in the Western church from Augustine's own time down to the Reformation. Mm -hmm. Similarly, um, the Reformation represents such an enormous rupture, I think, because what Luther and others do is develop, if you like, a, a different exegetical grammar, a different set of rules for how Paul is going to be interpreted. And again, there can be disagreements within that framework between individual interpreters, and there can be change and development over time. But nevertheless, there are the same fundamental ideas that crop up again and again and determine the pattern of Pauline interpretation over subsequent centuries. Yeah. Um, so it's that basic analogy between the way in which a language works and the way in which I think some of these frameworks of interpretation have worked. Um, so that's the concept. Um, in terms of key differences between what the reformers perceive as a basic exegetical grammar of Paul um, and what was true for the medieval church, I, I think the biggest difference is the reformers' sense that salvation is wholly and completely received in Christ. So they take seriously uh, the fact that those who believe need to grow in Christ, they take seriously the need for in increasing holiness in the Christian life. But for them, this is never about meriting uh, justification. This is, this is never about good deeds contributing in some way to our salvation. Rather for them, the, the good deeds of the Christian done in love of God and neighbor are consequences of what God has done in, in giving us justification. They're the outworking of that rather than um, things that contribute towards securing that justification in some way. Um, so that's the, that's the fundamental difference, I think. And then attached to that is their sense that therefore the, the righteousness that the believer receives is uh, in imp some important sense alien. Mm -hmm. um, in other words, it comes from outside. Um, of course, that's true in the medieval Catholic tradition as well. Uh, grace always comes outside to begin with, but then the task of the Christian is to make it their own in some way through cooperating with grace. Mm -hmm. um, whereas the reformers want to say, well, yes, this, this grace needs to transform us and change us, but it's not going to become um, some kind of stable uh, possession of our own or aspect of our own identity. It, it's always about us dwelling fully in Christ um, and, and always about uh, our living out of his righteousness. And, and so that kind of commitment to an alien righteousness really reflects the first point about salvation being wholly and completely available in Christ and his work. So from hearing you out, it sounds like uh, exegetical grammar, it's on one end, it's it's like, you know, when the reformers come along, they introduce a new framework, but that framework is always um, 
influenced by a reading of scripture. Um, right. And I think like um, something you, I know we don't have time to go through how the reformers, you know, you, people can read your book and I want people to read the book. <laughs> I just listened to the episode, but um, one, I think good example you pointed out is, you know, just I'll read Galatians chapter two, verse 19 through 20. It reads for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by the faith in the son of God who loved me and gave me for um, himself. And I think um, that is, uh, has a, uh, that informs Luther, I think, in the building of his framework. Um, as far as this idea, you speak a lot to uh, this motif, I guess, if you will, of union with Christ. Um, mm -hmm which goes hand in hand with his rejection of a grace by cooperation model that developed in the medieval era. But um, what exactly did Luther mean by being united with Christ? Um, because it seems like this is a very important thing in his Pauline interpretation. Um, mm. You know, if we don't do anything to earn that, what, it, what, what is being united with Christ, you know? Yeah. So um, a few things to say, you know, by way of preparing for the central answer to that question. I mean, I, I, I think what you're pointing out about the book, and it's right, is that um, the things that I just said distinguished the reformers' exegetical grammar from what had been said in the medieval Catholic Church. That was a kind of global summary. Um, one of the things the book tries to do is to show step by step the exegetical moves that the reformers made in order to, to reach those overall conclusions. So the book worked through uh, what they said about key terms and, and features of Paul's theology, like thin, the law, the conscience, um, grace and faith and the works of the law. Um, so I attempt to show how it's built up that way. So that's, that's one important preliminary. Um, the other one is to say that um, the idea of union with Christ in the modern era, by which I mean uh, the 19th century and the early 20th century in particular, um, the idea of union with Christ was often one that was not associated with the reformers. Um, their understanding of justification was often taken to be forensic, by which is meant it's an image derived from the world of the law court. And so um, when God justifies somebody, what that means is that the God is able to look at somebody uh, standing before his throne of judgment and, and no longer see the sins that they've committed, but, but see instead that they've been clothed with Christ's righteousness. Okay. Um, uh, and um, that kind of reading of Paul and of the reformers has often been criticized because it seemed to people then to have too little to say about how the gospel was actually going to change people in their daily lives. Um, it felt like a bit of a legal fiction. You know, here we are, uh, we're really sinners, but because of Christ's work for us, God sees us as something that we're actually not. God sees us as righteous. Um, now, um, the reformers certainly do recognize that justification is a legal metaphor in Paul. Um, 
that's that's uncontroversial. But actually, especially for Luther and Calvin, it it's understood that legal metaphor is understood to operate in the larger context of union with Christ. So if we take Luther in particular, because there are some differences in detail between um, Luther and Calvin and Melanchthon also actually in terms of how they think about uh, how they think about uh, the relationship between union and Christ, union with Christ and justification. But if we take Luther in particular, um, then uh, what he wants to say is that um, faith is a gift to us from God, um, and what faith does is unite us with Christ. And what that means is that Christ is present in our faith. And the images that he often reaches for to describe this are the, the presence of God in the Holy of Holies in the temple, or the, the presence of God in the pillar of fire in the wilderness with the people of Israel. Um, Jesus is present in faith in some parallel but mysterious way. Uh, and so those who believe are united with Christ. And if we're united with Christ, then we're, we're united with the one who is righteous. And, and therefore, yes, we receive his righteousness, but it's not abstracted from all the other ways in which Christ shapes us. Um, so for Luther, what, what it meant in relation to a text like Galatians 2, 19 to 20, was that he had a powerful sense that um, the self, as it had existed before someone encountered Christ, that, that self simply has to go. Um, you know, so he takes very seriously Paul's language that it's, it's no longer Paul who lives. Um, and, and Luther says, well, you know, what Paul means is that, that now he's living in Christ. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so the things that he does as an apostle of Christ, um, you know, Paul may speak the words, but he's speaking the words of Christ. Um, Paul may perform the actions, but he's performing the actions of Christ. Um, Christ is, is living through him and, and, and he's in, in Christ. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, anybody who says that also has to explain how it is that we, we still sin. Um, and so Luther would say, um, you know, uh, if we have faith, we have all the resources of who Christ is available to us. It, it's possible for us to live out of Christ. But that's the decision we face day by day in the spirit, on the spiritual battlefield of our lives. You know, we can turn back and we can begin to live out of our old selves again, and we can begin to live out of our sinful selves, or we can live out of Christ and, and who he is. Um, and, and so he understands Paul's statement in Galatians 2, 19 to 20 in, in that kind of context. Um, and it's in fact what he means by his famous statement that the Christian is simultaneously justified and a sinner. Um, it's often misunderstood to mean that Luther thinks that we're kind of stuck midway through a process of transformation, you know, that, uh, you know, we'd, we'd really like to be more holy, but that's not possible for us. Uh, 
and and so we're we're a, a little bit righteous, but in practice we're also still sinners. Um, actually, that's not what he's getting at. What he's getting at is the fact that uh, every day we have decisions to take about whether we live out of our old sinful selves or whether we live out of who Christ is. Um, yeah. And so what that means for him is that Christ living in us can be powerfully transformative in the, in in daily life. And, and he, he talks about faith being a mighty and powerful and active thing. Um, and it can be all those things for him without it needing, therefore, to be something meritorious that establishes some kind of claim on our part against, against God. Rather, he understands it as something transformative that, that's based on the gift of justification uh, and based on the gift of Christ and, and flows from it rather than resulting in it. Um, and, and so union with Christ is absolutely central to how he understands justification. Mm -hmm. And although Calvin does it in a different way, for Calvin too, um, justification by faith, although he's very clear that it's a legal metaphor, for him also it's an aspect of union with Christ. And so that was maybe one of the biggest discoveries for me coming to this, you know, to this research that, um, Actually, the whole concept of union with Christ was so central for both Luther and Calvin. Um, and that what it did was it meant that for them, actually, there wasn't a kind of transformative deficit. It wasn't that they, they were so concerned to uh, avoid any suggestion of salvation by works that they left the Christian kind of unchanged or without the resources needed to, to live the Christian life. Um, rather, because they have this strong concept of union with Christ that they connect to justification, um, it, it's possible for them both to insist that our, our deeds are not meritorious in any way, but, but also to nevertheless have a powerful sense of the way in which um, the grace of God changes people. And, and, you know, one of the big targets of the new perspective was, you know, Luther's reception or uh, of Paul, and um, your book traced a lot of the history between, you know, well, it, it kind of showed that there was, uh, you didn't just stop with uh, the Reformation and then fast forward 500 years to the new perspective. Um, you noted how there had already been some criticism of Luther's reception of Paul and Luther's interpretation mm -hmm. of Paul. Um, Christopher Stendhal, for instance, uh, you say in, in the couple decades before the new perspective, uh, so this would be in like the 50s, uh, saw Luther kind of reading his own biographical story into Paul's story and um, uh, his own historical context into Paul's historical context. Um, that is to say, the early life of Luther uh, leading up to the Reformation, he's he's struggling to find a loving God. He's he's spending a lot of introspect time and in introspection, perhaps too much, <laughs> and, you know, struggles with uh as the historical narrative often goes, a guilt-ridden conscience. And, and uh, uh, you know, I think it's pretty, that's pretty much a basic fact that, you know, he, he did have these struggles, but Stendhal claimed that Luther uh, kind of projected his own guilt-ridden conscience onto mm -hmm. Paul. Um, so, you know, Luther comes across the freeing, liberating good news, the gospel, you know, that he's saved through faith because of what Christ has done for him. 
Um, and then he projects onto Paul, you know, Paul having a similar experience on the road to, to Damascus. But, you know, what are some of the problems with this? Um, you know, I, I always, you know, before reading your book, I, I used to hear that too. And I'm like, I just don't buy that. Why does it have to, you know, uh, but I mean, was it, was it fair of, uh, was that a fair critique of Luther or how do you really address this? Yeah, you, you have to disentangle Stendhal's work quite carefully because there are ways in which I think he's clearly correct and there are ways in which he's in error. And he simply, I think, misunderstands what the reformers are trying to say about uh, the part the conscience plays in Paul's theology. So let me just try and trace that through a little bit. So again, in 19th and early 20th century Pauline scholarship, one of the questions people tried to answer was, uh, how do we explain Paul's Damascus Road experience? Mm -hmm. How do we explain this dramatic transformation from a persecutor of the church to an advocate of the gospel? And one of the ways that developed was to say, well, Paul must already have been struggling with his inability to obey the law. Paul must already have been struggling with the thought that he couldn't do what the law required. Um, and, and therefore, he must have been struggling with a sense of guilt. And one of the things that his encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus does is to resolve that for him. He no longer needs to struggle with the law and struggle with that guilt because instead he can rely on Christ. Mm -hmm. And Stondal questioned that, and particularly Philippians 3 and Galatians 1, where he alludes to his uh, Damascus Road experience and, and talks about his life before that, his life as a Pharisee. Actually, he gives no hint that he was struggling with guilt or with inability to obey the law. And that basic exegetical observation from Stendhal is completely correct. Mm -hmm. The problem is he then goes on to ask, where did the misunderstanding come from? Uh, where did this sense that Paul must have been struggling with guilt and inability to obey the law, where did that originate? And his answer is it originates with the reformers and particularly with Luther's experience. Now, there were Lutheran interpreters in particular in the modern era, and it's useful to remember here that Stendhal was a Lutheran bishop. Mm -hmm. um, there were Lutheran interpreters in the modern era who very much did identify Luther's own struggles as a young person um, with, with Paul and his experience. And, and say there's a fundamental similarity here. Mm -hmm. But actually, if you go back to Luther himself, this is not what Luther says. Um, if you go back to Luther himself, um, he, he uh, always associates the phrase, um, not by works of the law, with an attack by Paul on the illusion that it's possible perfectly to obey the law. Mm -hmm. So in other words, um, Luther doesn't think that Paul's problem before he encountered Christ on the Damascus Road is that he's struggling with guilt and sin. 
Luther thinks Paul's problem, and, and it's reflected too in what Luther says about Galatians 1 and Philippians 3, um, Luther thinks Paul's problem is that Paul is under the illusion that he can obey the law, uh, that he can do what God requires. And that this is the, this is the danger uh, or, or this is the characteristic misunderstanding from which Paul needs to be liberated. Um, so Stendhal is, is simply wrong to see Luther as the start of this particular error. Now, the reformers do um, take texts like Romans 3.20, uh, which says that through the law comes knowledge of sin. They do take texts like that to indicate that one of the purposes of the law is to make men and women aware of their own sinfulness. Mm -hmm. But what they don't do is erect it into a kind of experiential sequence where you have to have an experience of guilt and struggle with the law before you can be properly converted. Um, so um, they would hold, I think, that that happens sometimes or even frequently. Uh, and they would hold that that recognition of our own sinfulness brought by the law is, is a, a, meant to be a universal part of Christian experience. But they wouldn't necessarily insist that it always happens uh, before somebody um, comes to faith in Christ, because they can see examples in Scripture, like Paul himself, where that's not the case. Uh, and in fact, in reflecting upon his own experience, um, where Luther finds the relevance of texts like Galatians 1 and Philippians 3 is, is actually speaking to his own sense as a young person that um, he was doing the things that, that God required. Um, and this maybe tells us something about um, the particular forms that were taken by Luther's experience of guilt, because I think he does have a strong experience of guilt. We're not imagining that. Um, but it's not that he has a strong experience of guilt because he thinks, you know, uh, he, Luther, is sinning so badly while all his friends are behaving righteously. Uh, <laughs> Luther's problem is that he's the most conscientious monkey knows, uh, and yet he can't bring himself to believe that the, the, the things that he's doing day by day uh, in following his monastic vocation, the, the things that he's being told will uh, merit justification. He can't believe that those things are actually pleasing before God or that they're actually being effective. So it's not some kind of personal sense of inadequacy. It, it, it's rather his sense that uh, he, even he, with his, his dedication as a monk, is not able to do what, what actually would be required for a human being in order to be righteous before God by their own efforts. Um, and th this is the point that Stendhal misses, I think. Um, and if you trace it through, what you actually find in terms of Paul's Damascus Road experience is that this sense that Paul must have been struggling with guilt uh, before uh, that encounter, it doesn't originate with the reformers. It actually comes into prominence with the rise of historical criticism at a, at a point at which people need a psychological explanation for Paul's experience. In other words, um, if you move back before the European Enlightenment and before the rise of the modern European university, 
um, reading accounts of Paul's Damascus Road experience, um, people would have been typically much more happy simply to say, well, God did this. You know, the, the, this was a divine intervention. And that's the explanation of this event that we need. Whereas once you have the rise of historical criticism, then you also have the desire for an explanation, if you like, from within the human world of, of patterns of causation. And, and then an emphasis on Paul's psychological state grows. So um, Stendhal's a very interesting um, kind of example of somebody who uh, observes something uh, quite correctly about what's going on in, in uh, Paul's texts and rejects uh, an erroneous interpretation of that, but associates that erroneous interpretation with the reformers when actually there's no basis for doing so. This, this seems to me to be one of those concerns with exegetical grammar too, because to say that Paul needed to have some tumult in his life before the Damascus Road experience is, I think, to misunderstand what Luther defines as law. Law is not the 613 laws and the five books of Moses for Luther. For Luther, at least from my reading, because, of course, we're interpreting the people who are interpreting, right? But in my reading of Luther, it seems as if Luther is saying that any imperative in Scripture is law. Anytime you are told you must do something. So, so when Luther reads um, Mar uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, that can lead to nothing but scrupulosity for Luther. Hmm. And so, for, and I, I'm not saying that this is exactly how Luther read Paul's conversion, because I haven't read enough uh, of, of his perspective on that to be able to say definitively, but it seems to me that Luther would say, that Paul was confronted with the utter weight of the law when Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Mm -hmm. And that that in and of itself is a transformative moment to where he's confronted with the weight of the law, that what he has done is utterly displeasing to God. And from that moment on, there's a transformation when he receives the gospel and his baptism um, in the home of Ananias, perhaps. Um, so that's some context for my question for you, which is when you get into the new perspective on Paul and predecessors to it, like Christer Stendhal, and you have these clear differences in the way that they read terms like law, like gospel, and you also have with them their own historical context. So one concern that I have with, uh, you know, the concern that's often mentioned about the Reformation mm -hmm. is that it was a contextual response to the medieval penitential system, and it was an overcorrection. One concern that I have when it comes to E.P. Sanders, Tom Wright, James Dunn, and how they read Paul is that it could very well be an overcorrection of Luther and whatnot in light of things like the Holocaust that took place a generation before and is, of course, still very heavily on the mind 
of uh, of these interpreters. Would you say that that is true, or would you say that that's perhaps a caricature? I, I'm just curious. Thank you. I think that's a really helpful question. I mean, I think two parts in relation to what you said about the road to Damascus. I'm I'm not aware of Luther himself specifically making the move you described, where. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me becomes a, a revelation of the full weight of the law. Um, but there are certainly subsequent interpreters in the Protestant tradition who make that move. Right. Um, so that that's certainly been done. I, I think I can, um, I'm in danger of, you know, misremembering a primary source, but I, I think I can remember reading sermons of Whitfield, for example, that do precisely what you've just said. Right. Um, in relation to, um, the context of the new perspective. I, I think this is one of the issues with our contemporary practice of historical scholarship. That on the one hand, we have a kind of um, postmodern view that is radically skeptical about our ability to understand historically, and which emphasizes that historical reconstruction is really not less about what's objectively out there in the past and more about the work of the interpreter. And on the other hand, we have movements of historical criticism like the New Perspective, which claim to um, more historically accurately in, interpret Paul's texts. And both of those kind of intellectual trends exist within our world simultaneously, and yet they conflict with each other. Right. And one of the things that really interests me about the history of reception is the capacity to mediate that debate somewhat. Mm -hmm. um, because, in fact, as we interpret Paul, we don't simply move backwards and forwards between the 21st century and the 1st century. Yes, we're located in the 21st century, and yes, we're interpreting for our own time and place, but our own time and place, and even the questions that we ask about Paul's texts, ha have been influenced by all those generations of interpreters who've come in between. Right. And so uh, one of the things that seems to me particularly helpful is to try to be aware, number one, of how uh, previous interpreters have shaped us and our questions. And that's part of what I've tried to do with this book, but also to be aware of, of how events and forces in our own world have shaped the questions that we ask. And in relation to the new perspective, I think this kind of cuts two ways, actually. Um, on the negative side, I, I find it really hard to believe that the advent of the new perspective in the late 1970s in a context in which Western society as a kind of delayed reaction was, was really beginning to come to terms with the Holocaust. Um, I, I find it hard to believe that it can just be coincidence that historical criticism began to ask those questions and to present itself in those ways at that particular point in time. Um, and that becomes a negative if we're not self-conscious about it. But if we're self-conscious about it, then wouldn't it be a good thing? You know, wouldn't it be a good thing to ask ourselves, well, in the light of the Holocaust, um, are we hearing some of the things that Paul says about Judaism correctly? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, one of my criticisms of the new perspective would not be, um, one of my criticisms wouldn't be 
that it, it's responding to its context. My criticism would be it's not self-conscious enough about the way in which it's responding to its context. Yes, I agree. And, and, and secondly, also, you know, particularly if you look at the work of, say, James Dunn, I don't think there's any doubt that um, his emphasis on uh, overcoming the identification of the gospel with particular cultural traditions, I don't think there's any doubt that that emphasis responds to a powerful need in our own world when Christianity has become an increasingly diverse and global phenomenon. Um, you know, and again, I, I would want to say, well, the new perspective has really positive things to contribute there, but it, in order for that contribution to be made most effectively, it, it, it's necessary for there to be, uh, I think, a little more self-conscious reflection on, on the fact that the historical findings do actually meet a contemporary need. Mm -hmm. um, and, and if we're self-conscious about that, then that enables us at least to ask the question, well, okay, are our contemporary needs and contemporary contexts um, allowing us to ask the right questions or actually are they pushing us into overreactions? Um, and either could be true, I think, um, because our, our, our time and place may enable us to ask questions that reveal things that are really there in the biblical texts to which those who've come before might have been blind because their context didn't make them ask the questions in the same way. Um, but equally, it could be that our context and our time and place make us want to find certain things in the biblical text that might not really be there or might not be major emphases. Uh, and yet we, we, we want them to be there for our own purposes. And so um, for me, part of the history of reception is about raising all of that to self-conscious status and trying to ask ourselves those hard questions. I, I find that absolutely fascinating. Thank you for that, Dr. Chester, because when I was in seminary, one of my professors, um, the Reverend Dr. John Yeh, who's a Matthew scholar, is very interested with and uh, very interested in the history of reception, the history of effects. And so every exegesis we had to write, we always had a history of effects section where we could trace the history of interpretation, how that interpretation affected societies and, and, and affected history, really. And so I, I, I find that utterly fascinating. And especially we are talking about the, the self-awareness or lack of self-awareness um, and a couple of instances come to mind, and I don't mean this in a polemical way, but a couple of instances come to mind to me. David Bentley Hart, for instance, in his recent um, translation of the New Testament, sets out to completely remove every lens from the New Testament and its translation to look at it objectively, which is a, a bold move and a bold task. And what it amounted to in my reading was his removing every doctrinal lens and his exposition of the New Testament from this objective perspective looked like a liberal Eastern Orthodoxy, which is what he represents. Another instance of this from within my own tradition as an Anglican, Drew and, and, and I are both um, Episcopal priests, which our listeners should know that by now. Um, is uh, Bishop N.T. Wright, who 
being part of that new perspective or perhaps being um, related to the new perspective while seeking to differentiate himself quite a bit from E.P. Sanders and even from James Dunn. Um, he wrote a, a conversation with um, John Piper a number of years ago, and his book Justification is what came out of that. And one of those concerns about self-awareness and perhaps an overcorrection is where it seems to me that he posits that there are two justifications that take place, a justification by faith on this side of things and a justification by works um, in the resurrection, in effect. And I could be misreading him, so feel free to correct me on that point, if you will. But I suppose it's more of a statement than a question, but I, I'm curious uh, what your response to that might be. I, I, I think I would say that it's impossible for us as interpreters to jump out of our historical skins, okay. uh, that, that we just are located in the flow of time and we just are located in particular geographies uh, and we just do bring with us uh, cultural baggage. Now, the postmodern move would be to say, therefore, everything we say is going to be radically subjective. I, I think what I would say is, no, um, it cuts both ways. The, the, the fact that we interpret from particular places and particular times, um, that, and within particular traditions, that may lead us to miss some things, but it may also lead us to see some things. Uh, it, 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 it's not all negative. It also enables our interpretation. Right. Um, and so, you know, this seems to me on the philosophical side, um, you know, one of the big contributions that those who developed reception theory, like, like uh, Gadamer and Yaus, uh, th these are some of the big theoretical contributions that, that they made. Um, and so in relation to, um, you know, biblical studies, I, I am always suspicious of arguments that, that seek to simply leap back beyond, um, you know, the history of previous interpretations right. and, and, and only engage directly with uh, the biblical texts. Not in the sense that I don't think that engaging with the biblical text is the fundamental thing. It, it absolutely is. And not that I don't think that those texts can't speak powerful, corrective words to us. They, they, they do. Um, if all we ever hear in them is what we already think, then there's something wrong. <laughs> because these, these, these texts are given in the power of the Spirit to change and shape us. Um, but nevertheless, that all said, um, in that process, you know, we don't float free. We, we, we do, you know, come in the flow of time. And so it just seems to me a mistake to try and interpret as if previous generations of interpreters have not been or as if we can simply ignore them. Right. Um, it seemed better to critically engage them. Yeah. And the other, the other important aspect of this for me is uh, also in relation to diversity of interpretation. I mean, I think 
you know, often historical critical interpretation has op operated with the assumption that for any given text, there is one right interpretation and our task is to find it. Right. Um, and and postmodernism has typically posited an, an endless multiplicity of interpretations, all of which can be as valid as each other. Uh, actually, if you look at biblical texts and the history of their reception in relation to particular exegetical issues, often what you find is, uh, yes, there are variations in detail according to time and place, but down the centuries, there may have been two or three basic positions about particular texts that come up again and again uh, in different forms. Um, and so, you know, what you often see there, I think, is that there, there is some uh, diversity of interpretation, even amongst the best interpreters, and the serious discussion to be had, but that diversity of interpretation is not endless. Right. <laughs> you know, they just are, um, you know, some readings of particular texts that, that carry credibility and therefore come up again and again, um, mm -hmm. and other readings that maybe, a, a, you know, appear only in their own time and place and then are, are discarded. Right. Um, we're getting ready to wrap up here, but I like that note that you just that you just ended on, uh, Dr. Chester, because I kind of want to ask you in wrapping up this conversation, you know, prior to reading uh, your book, I I've read, you know, earlier critiques in the new perspective. The thing is, with a lot of those earlier critiques, um, they often didn't really see um, they often didn't really uh, I didn't really see that they were looking to appreciate anything about it. Um, like what good there was to take from it. But um, some of the earlier critiques were definitely concentrated on, uh, uh, they were definitely in the defensive posture, but um, uh, defending the old against the new, so to speak. But uh, your work is different. And I mean, in, um, in its very subtitle, you know, reconciling old and new perspectives. Why is it important? I think you touched a little bit on this with the importance of knowing that we belong in a stream of historical reception that we, um, acknowledging that, um, why is it important to reconcile old and new? Well, I think it's important to say that by reconcile, I don't mean that everybody gets to be right. Yeah. Uh, in, our, in, our, in our contemporary culture, if we talk about reconciling things, we, we often tend somehow to mean that, that everybody gets to be right. What I've done in this book is... I've tried to look critically at the reformers and say, what pieces of their interpretation do I think are exegetically valid and still have something to contribute today? And I've tried to look at the new perspective and ask the same questions. You know, which, which pieces of the new perspective are exegetically valid and, and should we be embracing? And which pieces maybe could we use the reformers' work to question and to modify? Um, so it, it, it's, it's reconciling as that kind of critical procedure that I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the new perspective, I think its fundamental uh, contribution was to ask hard questions about how we perceive Judaism. Mm -hmm. Because I think there's no doubt, although, um, it, you know, nobody in, you know, the 1930s in Germany was kind of saying, well, uh, the Nazis are right about uh, the Jews because um, 
you know, it fit, it fits with what this university professor has said about Judaism being a works, religion of works righteousness. You know, although nobody was saying that, it nevertheless is undoubtedly the case that generations of negative portrayals of Judaism um, has an impact uh, and probably in particular has an impact in um, eroding the capacity of the church to, to uh, see clearly and respond forcefully um, when an, an evil arises in the midst of society in the way that it did in, in that context in Germany. Right. So that correction I take to be very important. Um, I don't think the Second Temple Judaism is is a, a kind of crude religion of works righteousness where uh, people are trying to earn their salvation. But my my unhappiness with what the new perspective says about all of that really comes from something we've covered already, which is the nature of an overreaction. Um, because in, in my mind, when Paul talks about the works of the law, what he's talking about, I think, is the, the law as a way of life that's mm -hmm. characteristic of Judaism. And so um, if you embrace the law as a way of life, as characteristic of Judaism, yes, absolutely, you're going to engage in practices that mark your culture out and your religious tradition out as fundamentally different from that of the Gentiles. And so in emphasizing circumcision and the food laws and Sabbath observance, um, the new perspective on Paul is, is drawing our attention powerfully to that aspect of what Paul means by works of the law. But I don't think there is any easy division for Paul or for other Second Temple Jews between that boundary-defining function and what with our subsequent kind of spectacles or perspectives we, we'd call the ethical features of the law. Mm -hmm. um, you know, um, the boundary line between holy behavior and unethical behavior um, for a Second Temple Jew uh, on the basis of Scripture is the boundary between Jew and Gentile. So my, my problem with the new perspective is not that it draws attention to the boundary marking functions, but that it seems to want to interpret Paul's phrase, not by the works of the law, exclusively in relation to the boundary, working, the, the boundary marking functions, even when Paul's texts seem to be doing something differently. Yeah. Um, you know, and, for, and for me, Romans 4 would be a kind of paradigmatic example of that, um, where, where Paul does seem concerned uh, to deny that it's Abraham's virtuous deeds that have contributed towards his justification. Um, and, and yet, in that particular context, new perspective interpreters want to find a way to evade that and to take it as all being about uh, ethnic differentiation and distinction. Um, right. and, and that worked powerfully in, in other parts of Romans and in other parts of Paul, but there are places like Romans 4 where I, I don't think it accounts for it all. And so um, my kind of fundamental dissatisfaction with, with um, what the new perspective says about those issues is, is not a kind of sense that they've got it completely wrong in, in wanting to um, draw our attention to the prominence of the boundary markers or the, or the part played by communal identity 
in, in the arguments of Paul's letters, uh, those things are absolutely crucial. It, it's rather that in emphasizing those things, they've wanted to downplay or eliminate other things that I also think are really there in Paul's texts. Right. And some of those th other things that are really there in Paul's texts are highlighted particularly clearly by the reformers. And that's one of the things I think they've still got to offer to us. Right. Absolutely. Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Chester. Um, this has been a great discussion. Uh, fascinating topic. Um, for our listeners, again, the book is Reading Paul with the Reformers, Reconciling Old and New Perspectives by uh, Stephen J. Chester. And so I'll put a link in the show notes, a uh, link to be able to purchase uh, that book from Eerdmans. And um, so thank you, Dr. Chester. God bless. Don't just go. Thank you both. It was a pleasure being with you. Absolutely. Thank you.